May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning we get to talk about money. That's right. Get to talk about money here in church. I can see some of you shifting back and forth a little bit uneasily, furtively looking from side to side. Yes, it would be very awkward if you snuck out now. But no, we're not going to be like some churches and bar the doors. It's odd that talking about money in churches doesn't happen more often. Because Jesus actually had quite a bit to say about money. You know that whole bit about the rich man and the camel and the eye of the needle? Or the rich man and Lazarus? And when you flip through the whole Bible, you find quite a few statements about wealth, money, proper stewardship. So why is it that we are reluctant to talk about money? Why is it that we're a little hesitant when the subject of money comes up in church? Something worth exploring. Money, at its basics, as most basic, it's just a medium of exchange. It's a great way for me to be able to exchange my productivity for the productivity of someone else. It's really a pretty remarkable thing and allows us to have a lot more bounty than we would otherwise. Of course, one of the problems in the capitalist system is that how we value one's productivity and another is, I would say, somewhat out of whack. So the people who educate our children, for instance, don't get valued as highly in that capitalist system as, say, someone who plays professional sports. But of course, I, I'm a little guilty because I did watch some of the World Series last night, and I did flip on a little bit of uh, college football. But money is a necessity. Money allows us to uh, provide the food that we eat, shelter over our heads. Uh, it allows us to have the access to the health care that we need. It's something that we need every day. Now, when I look at the New Testament, it's interesting to see the example of Jesus. Jesus and his apostles were itinerant preachers. Here are people who had one or two cloaks, depending on which uh, gospel you're reading, who went around begging for food and had no place to sleep. That's quite a model of frugality. And indeed, when I was younger, I, I thought how, I, I wondered to myself how close I could get to that model. When I first got to divinity school, I really tried to live a very monkish life, but that didn't last very long. Because <laughs> the reality is that money is a necessity. We do need it. But the question is, what do we do with it? And what makes it awkward when we talk about it is not so much the necessity, not so much our needs, but our wants. When you think about your car, you could say, yeah, you have a whole range of cars that someone could buy. You could own a 2004 Honda Civic value package with manual windows and locks, like I do. <laughs> Which actually, having had it for as long as I have it, it has a certain place in my heart. Uh, you could also have a Bentley Coupe, which I hear are phenomenal on the acceleration. <clears throat> and you could have anything in between. You walk into a store, <clears throat> you could buy your clothes secondhand, or you could go down to Saks Fifth Avenue, 
go talk to the talented personal shoppers and walk out of the store with a $25,000 handbag and everything in between. The same is true for uh, vacations we go on. The same is true for the homes and the home improvements that we, that we put into our places where we live. The same is true for the vacations we go on. The same is true also for causes that we donate to. We balance wants. And because money is a limited commodity, balancing those wants requires choices. And those choices reflect our values. That's where the awkwardness comes in. As Jesus says in our passage from Matthew 6, which unfortunately got cut off in our, uh, in our printed readings, uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The choices we make and how we balance our various wants reflect our values. Several years ago, my friend Shelby Condre got me to sign up for this website, mint.com. I don't know if any of you have used that. This is one of these applications that allows you to link your bank account and your credit card uh, all in one app. And it then categorizes your expenses. And it's a, I'm someone who, who's not very good at budgeting, so it's a little unnerving to open up a website and see exactly how you spend your money. Because there are your values laid out in front of you. Me, I have to confess, I spend too much money uh, going out to restaurants and going out to drinks with friends. Now, I justify this because I'm unmarried and I don't have kids. So I'm like, okay, so that, I guess that's okay. But when I'm honest with myself, I, one reason that I spend too much money on these things is because a lot of my friends have more money than I do. And so they ask me to go out, and I don't want to seem... Like, I can't afford it, so I say, yes, I'll go out. And then the bill comes around, and I don't be that person who's like, well, I only had the appetizer, so I put in my credit card, and then the bill gets split, and I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But there's that sense of wanting to keep up with the Joneses, of wanting to uh, keep up with your peers that leads me to end up making financial choices that probably wouldn't be the best. Have you ever experienced something like that? What are some of the ways that you spend money that you might second guess if you were to see it all laid out on a sheet before you? But you know, this is really awkward. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't talk about money at all. We should talk about happier subjects, easier subjects, subjects that engender less guilt, because guilt uh, is not something that we like to experience. But when I think about it, I'm like, is, is that what God wants? to us to not to talk about money? I mean, this is a church, or technically a meeting house. If we're going to talk about hard subjects, if we're going to talk about truth, and we're going to wrestle with truth at a very deep level, what better place to do it than here? Hopefully, this is a place where we can be honest. And if we're honest, <clears throat> and if we're honest, the reality is that money implies quite a bit of morality. I think back to the 2008 financial crisis. I remember reading that UNICEF reported that after the 2008 financial crisis, some 100 million children worldwide became food insecure as a result of that crisis. So as a, as a result of the greed of certain individuals that led to the 2008 financial crisis, 100 million children went to bed hungry as a result of that. 
Not to mention the number of people who lost their homes in that crisis. Money issues carry with, the, carry with them morality. Not long ago, I watched that documentary, The Smartest Guys in the Room, about the fall of Enron. This is Houston. When Enron collapsed, a lot of people, a lot of average, hardworking people who didn't make a lot of money lost their retirements. It wasn't just the people who drove Enron off the cliff. In fact, a lot of those people had golden parachutes. And towards the end of the documentary, it mentioned how towards the end of Enron's life, one of the things that kept Enron afloat for a couple years was their energy trading business. And after the deregulation of, energy, of the energy market in California, Enron took advantage of that and manipulated the market to such a degree that the, average, that the, that the electricity bills of certain people in California went up tenfold. Imagine your electricity bill going up tenfold just so energy traders at Enron could make a little extra money. Or we think a, a more recent example. In the news in the last few months has been the issue of Mylon, the pharmaceutical company that makes the EpiPen. EpiPens are those short doses of epinephrine that you give to someone in case they go into anaphylactic shock as a result of a severe allergic reaction. Because of the importance of this and the life-saving nature of this, schools require that you have uh, several pens, a packet of pens, when you go to school if you are subject to these severe allergic reactions. EpiPens are not expensive to make. They cost a few dollars to make. And yet Mylon is selling them for over $500 for that package. And parents are required to purchase these. Now, thankfully, they got a lot of blowback, but still, here you have the greed of a particular company an outrageous profit margin, and people who really, some of whom can't afford it, forced to buy these things. Money and morality issues are far beyond just these examples. I mean, we think about distribution of health care in the world, distribution of health care in the United States, distribution of food around the world, access to opportunity, all of these things. Money issues are deeply embedded in morality, and as Christians, they're something we have to wrestle with. And then there's the personal stuff. Have you ever had a situation where you have been in a financial crisis? It's not a pleasant place to be. Where you don't know how you're going to pay your bills. You don't know what the future holds. There's a reason why the generation that grew up in the Great Depression were such great savers. People who squirreled away all sorts of money because they'd been through periods where there wasn't any and they never wanted to go back there again. My great-grandparents used to uh, save all their paper napkins right through the day that they died because they had gotten the habit of saving everything coming out of the Depression. In 1985, my father was a small business owner uh, and an entrepreneur. In 1985, my father was in the midst of starting a new business. And he got a call from his bank one day that said that his loan was due back in two weeks. His bank had gone under as a result of the savings and loan crisis. Now, my father had put up the house as collateral for this loan. He had done nothing wrong, but now all of a sudden he faced uh, a bill coming due in two weeks or he'd lose the house. Now, I was only five at the time, so... I had only a vague idea of what was going on, but I knew that there was crisis in the home. One thing kids pick up on is emotional stuff. And I picked up on the fact that something was really, really wrong. And I knew it had to do with money. All of us did. 
there was this moment where actually the, my, myself and my brother and my sister got together upstairs and we actually brought all of our savings down. <laughs> we broke open our piggy banks and brought our savings down and gave them, presented them to our parents offering whether or not this would help. I don't, I don't think our like $5.65 would have made a big difference, but I, I, I know that my parents shed a lot of tears that night as they were thinking about it. Now, fortunately, my father was able to liquidate basically everything he'd ever saved, uh, and he went hat in hand to his father and was able to get the money for short term to pay off the bank and keep the house. He was one of the lucky ones. And the crisis led my, fa- my, my mother going back to work. One of the nice things about that crisis is it actually brought my parents closer together uh, as they began to share more of the financial burdens uh, that the family carried. But of course, money issues don't always bring families together, do they? Think about issues over inheritance. You ever gotten caught up in one of those? Someone dies and there's a dispute over who gets what, or the fairness of who gets what. Talk about something that can tear a family apart, especially in the midst of grief. Or perhaps if, you're in, if you have money issues, it can put enormous strain on a marriage. One of the things that can lead to marriages breaking up are financial stresses. Very easy for tempers to be short with one another. It's especially problematic when spending habits are different from one spouse to another, as is often the case. Every purchase gets judged, every purchase gets critiqued. Money issues matter. Money issues are fundamentally moral. And therefore, here in this church is a place to talk about that. So what do we do? How does our faith help us to navigate some of the tricky ground of dealing with money? The first thing is, during stewardship time, one advantage of stewardship time is that it calls on us to do an honest accounting of where we spend money and why. And I encourage everyone to do that. To be honest. To sit down and say, okay, go through your books and say, where do we spend our money? And does this reflect the values that we want it to reflect? For some of us, the answer will be yes. For some of us, the answer might not be yes. But it's a worthwhile exercise either way. I was doing this exercise the last few days, and I was like, okay, i got to change a few of my spending habits. But it's helpful to see that and to go through that process. Another thing that our faith brings up, and this goes back to the Old Testament, is the value of a tithe. A tithe is 10% of your income. That's what a tithe is. And going back to the Old Testament, there is a call to put aside 10% of your income towards a cause for God. Now, this could be towards, this could be money given to the church, but it could also be money given to nonprofits that you care about. A tithe is something that is a spiritual discipline, a spiritual exercise. In ancient Israel, it was the value of giving away the first fruits of your labor to God. You offer up the first of what you have to God, and then you go from there. Now, a tithe is a big number. And if you're not used to thinking about that number, it can kind of be a bit of a shock when you start running around in your head what that might mean. That's part of the point. It's meant to be a spiritual guidepost, a spiritual goal, something to aspire to. Now, certain churches, 
Certain churches require tithes. If, you're, if you grew up in the Church of Latter-day Saints, for instance, they literally have you bring in your tax returns. Uh, and they go through your tax returns to make sure that you're giving 10% of your money to the Church of Latter-day Saints. Uh, Trinity United Church of Christ, which is the largest church in our denomination in Chicago. Trinity United Church of Christ, they require everyone in leadership positions at Trinity to be tithers. Now, we don't do that here. We don't require people to be tithers. Furthermore, I don't know what you give. I have those documents, those contribution reports in my office. But I've chosen not to look at them because, frankly, I don't care. And besides, Matthew 6, our scripture text this morning, says when you're giving, it's not about showing off before other people. It's something between you, your family, and God. And so I don't really care what you give. But as your minister, I do encourage you to reflect on the spiritual value of giving and the importance of it. And we all realize that we're in different financial circumstances. For some of us, giving money is a lot more difficult than others. I don't have any children, so it's comparatively easy for me to write a bigger check than others. Some people, for various reasons, are in more financial difficulties, and everybody understands that. Others have the capacity to give, and I encourage everybody to consider at what level you think is appropriate. It's not about judgment. It's about sitting down and going through an issue of values and morality spiritual discipline, coming with a plan for the next several years to see how you can challenge yourself to give more. Because the reality is, is when you do give a big check, a check that hurts, a check that means you have to sacrifice other things, it is a bold statement in a society like ours where money is the be-all and end-all. In our society, you are judged based on the amount of money you have and the amount of possessions you have, especially in a place like Houston. I gotta be honest, I gotta call out Houston on this. Houston is a very material place, and it's a very showy material place. Look at, look at the size of some of the houses in this neighborhood. I go to my gym, and the number of nice cars in my gym, I've never seen so many nice cars in any parking lot in my life. And some of my friends point out to me, well, some of those people can afford it, and others can't. But they all want to show that they have it. What better countercultural move to make than to say that money is not the be-all, end-all in my life, and that my satisfaction... My happiness, my fulfillment, my relationship with God does not depend on the, quality of, on, the, on the car that I drive, the size of the house I live in, or the various toys that I, that I have. To be able to make that statement is a powerful statement. It is a freeing statement as well. Because again, money can have such perverse implications in our life. And even more than that, when you give away money... When you give away a good chunk of money, you get to see the good that it does because it can do so much good. This church, and this is a shock to me all the time, is entirely supported every year by voluntary contributions from all of you. That is remarkable. Almost no nonprofits in our society are supported by individual donations from members. Almost every nonprofit is supported by the government on one level or grants. Very few are supported entirely by individual contributions, yet this church is supported entirely by individual contributions. That is an incredible testament to the commitment that you all have to the success and health of this church. And that is a great thing. The value of being able to preach the good news to people, 
to spread the message of God's love to all of you, to be supports to one another and to support those in our community. This is a good thing to celebrate and it depends on your money. And the same thing with the other causes you support. The money you give to the schools where you send your kids. The money that you give to local nonprofits that can help those in need. You can see the impact that that has. You can particularly see the impact that has when you write a check that's big enough that you know that you could be spending that money otherwise, but you choose to spend it in a place like that. It is a good and great thing and something to be celebrated. Church. Yes, church. <laughs> so I encourage you all to take stewardship season seriously. Use it as a time of reflection and try and think about the role that money has in your life and the role that you want it to have. Money itself is morally neutral, but what we do with it can make all the difference in the world. Now, the stewardship committee has determined that we're going to be collecting financial pledges for next year over the next three weeks, this week and then the two weeks that follow. And again, the reason why we make financial pledges for the year ahead, there are really two reasons. The first reason is uh, because it allows us to budget for the upcoming year. It makes the budgeting process a lot easier if we actually have a good sense of what will be coming in next year based on people's pledges. A second reason for pledging is that it does call us to an honest financial accounting. When you sit down and make a pledge, you call yourself, you, you, set, a, you set a standard that you are saying, I'm going to live up to this level. So again, I encourage everyone here to think about making a financial pledge, to consider making a financial pledge, um, and then when you're running out of the number, just make it a little bit bigger. So now what we're going to do is I invite everyone, myself included, I get to begin. <laughs> After all, you've got to put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> um, I invite everyone who is on the stewardship committee and any other one, any, anyone else who might have their stewardship cards with them uh, to stand up and bring them forward. Um, and then again, next week we'll be asking all the boards uh, to contribute their stewardship cards. And then in two weeks, we'll have 